This is episode 468 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Let's just cut to the chase. We are living in troubling times. Right now in California, for example, pastors are being threatened with fines and imprisonment for holding church services indoors. Yet riots and demonstrations are not restricted, but encouraged. I mean, how is that possible in our nation? And many Christians who should be standing shoulder to shoulder for the truth are scattered like autumn leaves, afraid of their own shadows. Is that what following Jesus is all about? And what does following Jesus in real time mean anyway today? Is it an emotional decision we make one time in our life that lets Jesus season our life for the better? Or is it like Bonhoeffer who said, it's a call to come and die? Or maybe something in between these two extremes. Whatever it means, those following Jesus and Scripture seem to have a different life than we do today. They seem more committed, more focused, and more fruitful than we are. Why is that? Today, we'll look at what it means to follow Jesus from the pages of Scripture and also examine the message Jesus preached, and that's not of eternal life in him and the forgiveness of sin, but it's about his kingdom and all that that means. There's so much we can discover regarding him. So let's jump right in as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We are, as I've shared with you, moving into rather tough times, and it behooves us to be more serious about our relationship with Christ. And so as I began studying this, kind of moving on from verse number 43, I got fixated at verse number 43. And um, it says that the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. In other words, he made a decision. I want to leave physically from where I'm at right now, and I want to head somewhere else. And he found Philip. We could talk a lot about how that happened. Uh, Jesus actually sought him out. It wasn't that, these, that Philip came to Jesus and then Jesus turned around like with John and Andrew and said, you know, what do you seek or who do you, uh, what are you looking for? Instead, he found Philip and he said to Philip the very thing that he says to almost every person he runs into, follow me. I talked a little bit about this in January. I talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, but I kind of I got arrested to the reality of what does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, what does Jesus mean when he would come up to somebody? I mean, he found Philip. Now, Philip was from the same town that Andrew and Peter were from. He was probably, the next verse tells us that, he was probably a fisherman. Maybe Philip was at the water. Maybe he was at his boats. Maybe he was hanging around with the other fishermen. Maybe Philip was doing something regarding his work or his business. We don't really know. Maybe he was having a meal. But Jesus walked up to Philip on his way to Galilee. I'm leaving for where I am. I'm passing through wherever Philip is at, knowing he's from Bethsaida. And while I'm there, I'm, I'm making a, a statement to him or an invitation, and I'm saying, follow me. So what did that mean to Philip? What did that mean when Jesus made that statement, follow me? What does that mean for us Today, is it the same thing as being saved? Is it the same thing as giving your life to Christ or saying the sinner's prayer? I mean, what does it mean? When a pastor is given an evangelical, let's say a revival kind of message, and he says that Jesus wants you to follow him. All those that would like to follow him, you know, give some physical sign of that by stepping out on, on the aisle and coming forward. It doesn't matter what the sign is. You could wave your hands and are coming forward and embracing this old pastor's hand and we'll have people pray with you and you will begin the life of following Jesus. And as a matter of fact, while we're doing that, we're all singing this song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No looking back. Something before me, the old life behind me, I've decided to follow Jesus. But to us, it means nothing more than something emotional. It means nothing more than some sort of non-physical commitment. 
It doesn't mean that we pack up and go where Jesus is because he's physically not with us anymore. It doesn't mean that we devote our lives to missionary work. It doesn't even mean that we devote our lives to full-time Christian service. Jesus comes and seasons our life. If you're an accountant like I was, now I'm a Christian accountant. What does that mean? Does it mean now I only deal with churches or ministries or stuff of that nature? No, it just means I'm a Christian accountant. That when you know we have the... Back then it was the Georgia Society of CPA meeting every couple months that I would drink Coke rather than drink all the other drinks they had there. That means when I go to church that I'm, I'm a Christian and, and I mean, well, then what else does it mean? Maybe I changed my music, maybe I changed my language a little bit, maybe I you know, quit sleeping around, maybe I do some other things like that. But technically speaking, from our vernacular, it doesn't mean really anything other than some emotional mental commitment to a set of ideals embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Never, ever, ever meant that in the time in which Jesus lived. Never meant that in the book of Acts. Never meant that in the epistles. But for some reason, it does that to us today. So I started looking First at John, there's about half a dozen of these. Then I went back to Matthew to see how it was done in Matthew because Matthew kind of represents the synoptic gospels. When we say that, what we mean is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. In other words, they come from the same outline and a lot of people believe that they may have had copies of each other's letters when they wrote theirs. And John is totally different. John has different miracles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they're called the Synoptic Gospels. And then John, of course, stands on its own because it was written 60 years after probably uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were. And so you want to see what John has to say, but then you want to go back and take a representation of the Synoptic Gospels. And instead of going through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which would have similar stories, you just, I like to take one of them. And Matthew is the, Matthew's just, to me, it's my favorite. And so uh, we'll take a look at how Matthew uses this to get kind of a general overview of when Jesus used the phrase, follow me, what exactly did it mean? And so we have it here in the book of John, verse number, chapter 1, verse number 43. This is the first time it's used in the book of John. On the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. I'm sure there was a lot of other people that he passed. There were people up and down the road. There were people in the various towns he went through. I'm sure Philip probably wasn't the only person on the lake if he met him in a lake like he did, you know, Andrew and Peter and James and John, who was fishing. There were other people there. But for some reason, he sought Philip out, and he obviously communicated something to Philip, or Philip's heart was open to the message of Christ, or there was this... this calling, effectual call that's going on into Philip's life. And so he simply says, follow me. And then from that point on, Philip's life changes. Every time we see Philip, he's bringing somebody, you know, here's Nathaniel, we're going to bring him, and here's this. And, and we see that he's always associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow me meant more than some mental assent to some sort of doctrinal statement. Chapter 10, he says those words again. Again, we're only going to go through about half a dozen of those. In this passage, he's talking about sheep, and he's talking about being a shepherd. And again, we don't know much about sheep and shepherds because we're not ranchers or shepherds or stuff of that nature, but they did. And he's talking about sheep hearing his voice and following the shepherd. And we'll begin in verse number 25. Uh, Actually, we'll go to verse 24. Then Jesus, then the Jews surrounded him, confronting him, and said, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Just speak the word, let us know. And Jesus answered them and said, I told you. I've already told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, there bear, bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. Now, we focus on the hearing the voice. And this is one of those classic verses regarding election. There's this rhetorical question that 
uh, made a big difference in my life when I was faced with it. Did they become his sheep by hearing his voice? Or did they hear his voice because they were already his sheep? I believe they heard his voice because they were already his sheep, just like a mother hears a child's voice because that's her child. But the, it's more than just hearing his voice and saying, I belong to you, Jesus, because the added task here is they follow me. They follow me, whatever that means. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, because I and my Father are one. They follow me. Chapter 12, verse 26. We're going to begin in actual verse, we're going to begin in verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up and worshiped at the feast. And they came to Philip. Oh, we run into Philip again here, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus came and told Andrew, and Andrew in turn, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them and said, The hour is coming that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assured I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. If you will follow the ministry of Jesus, by the time you get to John chapter 12, it's after Lazarus has been raised from the dead, his whole focus changes. And it's almost like he's trying to instruct his disciples about his coming death. They had rejected it before, and so there's almost this sadness about him, and, and it seems like this theme of his death runs all through uh, what he says from that point on. He who loves his life will lose it, verse 25, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Has something to do with following Jesus. If anyone serves me, this word is denokio. This is the word we get deacon from. This word means to wait upon somebody, the emphasis on work, uh, it's not a relationship. In other words, this is someone who actually serves. So if anyone serves Christ, you and I, we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? We do his bidding. We're his slaves. We take care of what he wants to do. We're his hands and feet and all these things we talk about. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant who serves me will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So if we claim to serve him, it's not just enough to serve him when we want to. The idea here is that we're serving and following. Wherever Jesus is, that's where we're to be. I started looking at um, the uh, Experiencing God book again this week. Uh, actually, it was the latter part of last week, thinking about some things for uh, Wednesday night. And again, the whole idea that made experiencing God so revolutionary is the fact that we're to sit back and figure out where Christ is at, where he's ministering. If he's not moving here, why in the world would I want to be here? Because, well, that's my home. It's like we're comfortable. This is where my needs are met. It's all about me. Yeah, but Jesus is moving over there. And if I'm serving him, then I should be where he is. And that's the whole crux of experiencing God. Um, chapter 13, we'll begin in verse number 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, and again, he's talking about his death now. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. I'm, I'm a little confused, Jesus. I know, that's why I call you little children in verse number 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
And the disciples blew over the fact that he's talking about loving one another. And instead, what bothered them is the fact that he is leaving. I told the Jews that I'm leaving and you can't go. And they were so fixated on verse number 35, they, they, they just couldn't even grasp thirst. Verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 33, they couldn't grasp verse 34 and 35. So Simon Peter, as usual, voices their concern. Simon said to him, Lord, where are you going? It doesn't really matter. You should love one another. I got that, but where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And so Peter understood that whatever was going to happen to Jesus, Peter was willing to let it happen to himself because he was following Christ. And we know how this whole thing turned out. And as a matter of fact, when we get to John 21, um, Peter has pretty much had enough. Peter's struggling. Peter grabs a couple of the disciples and says, I'm going to go back to the old life. I was happy fishing. We made money fishing. When we've been with Jesus for three and a half years, we never fished. Everything that we had, he miraculously provided, or some of the ladies that followed us took took care of those needs. We were just focused on ministry here. He even sent us out two by two and told us not to take anything for our journey because a workman is worthy of his hire and he will take care of us and teach us faith. But now Jesus is dead and he's resurrected and we've seen him. I have no idea what's happening tomorrow, so I'm going back fishing. Verse number 15, of course, Jesus uh, meets with Peter and disciples. They've got this big haul of fish and and, and And uh, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than this? Yes, I do. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Then in verse number 18, he begins to tell Peter what his life is now going to be like. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wish. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. John tells us after the fact, looking back, this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And we do know that Peter was crucified and tradition says he was crucified upside down. And when he had spoken this, the cost of following me, he said to him, follow me. There it is again, not study your Bible, pray, be faithful in church, you know, make a lot of money and support other ministries or, or, you know, only watch Pure Flix movies or whatever we try to do. Follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who had also leaned at his breast at the supper and said, this is John he's talking about, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? You've told me what's going to happen to me. What about John? And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? And here we go again. You follow me. And Peter spent the rest of his life doing just that, following Christ, living for Christ, devoting himself to Christ. We don't think we have to do that today because the church is big and the church is kind of a big tent and all we're interested in is getting people to say a prayer, to make a commitment, to come on Sunday, to put money in the tithe, to support the, the ministry, but you know, to live a life a little bit better than we did before. But biblically, that's not, that's not the way the word was ever used. Now, that's how that phrase is used in John. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 4, and let's look at, again, there's about five verses here on how it's used in Matthew as an example of synoptic gospels. John chapter 4, he is beginning his ministry. Verse number 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not uh, give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, ask him to be savior, commit your, your life to him, and you will have eternal life in heaven. 
not say a sinner's prayer and somehow affirm historical facts about Jesus and you'll be okay, but there's something about a kingdom because the gospel is about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Follow me. In, um, well, let's go to Matthew chapter 8 here. Verse 18, and when Jesus saw multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, a scribe now is like a a lawyer of theological persuasion, and so he spends his whole time studying the scripture, and so he understands and he wants to follow him. And Jesus said, really? Really? It says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples, not the twelve, but another of the entourage that was already with Jesus said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, don't, and again, I've, I've always shared with you what this meant. It meant splitting the estate and taking care of my finances and making sure my house is paid off. And I do the stuff I want to do when I'm young. And I'll give you the years, Lord, that I have left over. And Jesus says, no, let all that take care of itself. You follow me. Chapter 9, three more. This is, of course, when he met Matthew. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at, this is chapter 9, verse 9, sitting in a tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew said, okay, lead me in a sinner's prayer, and I'll be a Christian tax collector. I'll be really fair in what I do. I won't rip anybody off, but I don't want to give up my franchise. No, it says that he arose and followed him. So much so that the next couple verses talk about a party that he threw, and in the party that he threw, he basically talked about, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna give back to those people that I've taken advantage of. And then we get to chapter 16. This is a key point here. Um, In Matthew chapter 16, what happens is, Jesus now asked them, do you truly believe I'm the Messiah? It begins in verse number 13. This this is a pinnacle part here. And we find that by the time we get to verse 21. Here's what he says. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men, not you, I'm not asking you to make a commitment now, but who do men say that I, and I'll tell you who I am, the son of man am. Who do, who do men say that I, the Son of God, am? Um, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Not one, in verse number 14, not one time do they say that people say you are the Son of God. So we said to him, who do you say that I am? And again, I've shared this with you before. I see this dramatic pause between verse 15 and 16 where everybody's shuffling their feet, looking at each other. And finally, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of man. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Verse 21, from that time, only after they made the affirmation about who he was, Jesus began, in other words, he started the process to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. And Peter, of course, takes him aside like he's scolding him and says, that will never happen, Lord. And and Jesus, of course, 
rebuked Peter and called him Satan, thinking you're thinking like men do and you're not thinking like God does. And so he begins this lesson, graduate school, I think, in verse number 24, because of what Peter said. I'm going to begin to show you with baby steps, but because you responded that way, let's just jump into the deep end of the pool. Verse 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, the ultimate symbol of self-denial, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man gain in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works, something we don't even think about today. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, which, by the way, was partially fulfilled in the very next chapter in the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw Jesus transfigured in just a, a, a sliver of what his glory is like. If you want to follow me, it's self-denial. It's not about you. It's about me. Last one, chapter 19. And, of course, this is the story of the rich young ruler, or the American who comes to Jesus. And he is kind of like a Laodicean American because he thinks he's rich and wealthy and needs nothing, yet Jesus loves him and he's done really well to keep the law his whole life. In other words, he's tried by the flesh to live better than everybody else, thinking somehow that he would measure up and make himself so holy God will let him in heaven. Verse 16, now behold, one came to him and said, good teacher, what good thing shall I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments, which are impossible to do. And he said to him, which ones? Okay, we'll make it easy on you. I won't give you the impossible commandments about love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and everything. I won't give you the vertical commandments, the first four. Instead, let's just see how you treat each other. So he gave him the horizontal commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus, seeing everyone's heart, says, if you want to be perfect, this word perfect doesn't mean without flaw, it means complete and whole. If you want to be perfect, complete, or whole, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. And after you have done that, after you had jettisoned what's keeping you earthbound, and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler, like most of us, would probably say, ain't what I signed up for. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be an itinerant. I don't want to be destitute. I don't want to trust God to meet my needs. I want the kind of Christianity that you and I have grown up with the kind of Christianity that, that I was sold and that I have sold others, that it's not about anything you do. It's just about confessing some truth. Do you remember the Roman road? You ever led somebody to Christ to the Roman road? Y'all know what that is, by the way? It's a set of scriptures that you begin in Romans chapter 3, Verse 10, if you want to do the long version, uh, or, or 23, if you want to do the short version. And what you do is when you're sharing Christ with somebody, they teach you to, to write you know, the, the next verse upside down in the margin of your Bible. So you can turn your Bible around and put it in their lap, and you're going to let the Word of God convict them. And you, of course, looking at their upside-down Bible, have got the next verse. You can turn the page and, and show them. Just read this verse and read this verse and read this verse. And, and the the the... The gospel, the salvation message through the Romans road will lead them to Christ. So we're going to take a trip on uh, the Roman road right now, and we're going to look at Romans 
which is our first passage. Taking somebody on the Romans road. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks God. Okay, that's the state of man, that's who we are. And then we go to Romans 3.23, which is the next verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none who seeks God, and all have fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Have you ever sinned? The person says, yes, I have. Then this includes you. Then we go to Romans 5, verse 8. Here's what God does because of our sin. God's action now. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. This is not us demonstrating our devotion to him, but he demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did he do that? Romans 6.23. For the wages, what we earn of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. A gift is something that we don't earn. A gift is something we don't deserve. It's something that's been provided for us. A gift is something that we just received. Would you like this gift of eternal life that God has provided for you by demonstrating his own love for us, by having his own son die because the wages of sin in your life is death and God wants to give you eternal life? Would you like this gift? Yes. How do I receive it? Romans 10. Last verses here. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Here's what we say. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is that it? Yes. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But will that even include me? Well, if, if, if I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord and believe God raised him from the dead, is that the same as following Jesus? Will I be saved? Yes. Look at verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, how do I go about doing that? Oh, you pray the magical sinner's prayer. Don't you remember the sinner's prayer? And when you pray the sinner's prayer, then if you pray that prayer, then you're saved. As a matter of fact, if you don't even want to pray the prayer, I'll pray it for you and you just nod. Because the whole goal of salvation is to get someone to say the prayer. And what does the prayer involve? And there's many versions of it. But pretty much it tries to fulfill what's happening in verses 9 and 10. That we want to confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord. We want to ask him to forgive us of our sins. We ask him to come in to our life. We believe that he was raised from the dead, and we say that we will serve him forever, which is great. But the prayer doesn't save you. As a matter of fact, if regeneration hasn't already taken place, you won't even want to pray the prayer. Because there's none that seeks after God, no, not one. There's not one that follows after God because we've all gone astray. And the fact is, it's only after regeneration takes place that you're almost capping it off by saying the sinner's prayer. And so in my life, I've said that prayer 200 times in all different fashions, on my knees, standing out with people laying hands upon me in a myriad of different churches, and nothing happened. It's not a mantra because faith has to precede that prayer, and it wasn't until I got saved that I was even able to pray a prayer. And what we end up trying to get people to do is make a mental commitment to Christ after reciting some verbal truths about Jesus. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And I know I've shared this with you a dozen times. I do. Satan, do you believe? Yes, I do. Do you believe he died on the cross, that he was buried for three days, that he raised on the third day, that he, he wandered around for 40 days, he ascended up into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he's coming again in glory. Do you believe that? That's way beyond my pay grade to the new believer. I believe that, Satan, do you? Absolutely. Are you willing to submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Now, let me ask Satan first. Are you? No. Are you? Yes, but we don't. Yes, but not really. Yes, during the prayer, but the rest of my life, 
Ain't no way. I'll submit some of my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the stuff I don't really care about, but I'm going to hold on to my anger and my bitterness and my greed and my lust and, and everything else that makes my life wonderful. I'm still Lord of my life. I want God you to season my life. I want to call all the shots in my life, and yet we think that that satisfies what it's saying here. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord or the Lord Jesus, the context here has nothing to do with Christian salvation. The context here has to do with Jews entering into the kingdom of God. The verse that's quoted in verse 13 is from the book of Joel. And the book of Joel is talking about what's going to happen at the end of time in the tribulation period when the Jews finally call out to God. I mean, if you will, if you will look at um, chapter 9 of Romans. Chapter 9 of Romans deals all about the Jews and all about election. You know, uh, verse number um, 6 of Romans chapter 9. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. And then it talks about the difference between Isaac and, and Jacob and, and Esau. And, and then it goes on to talk about Pharaoh and God hardening his heart. And chapter 9 is the most Jewish chapter in the book of Romans. Chapter 10 begins talking about the fact that Israel needs the gospel. It begins, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, not us, but Israel. I bear, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law, and have, but have, and have not submitted to the righteousness of Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then he goes on to talk about, well, let me go ahead and just read this. Uh, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. And he quotes here from Leviticus. The man who does those things shall live by them. In other words, if you claim to follow the law, you must keep all of the law. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we preach, talking to the Jews here. That is, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. The, the context here is God redeeming Israel. So much so that verse 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want you to turn to Joel chapter 2, and I want you to show you that verse the way it was written in context. Joel chapter 2. Everybody got it? Let me help you out. It's right next to Hosea. Right before Amos, that's even better. I won't, uh, I won't read this whole chapter to you, but it begins, chapter 12 begins with this call to repentance. You know, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Um, I'm sorry, this is chapter 2, verse 12. With fasting and weeping and mourning, rent your hearts and not your garments, return to the Lord your God, who is gracious and merciful. He's talking about Jews now. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly. Uh, verse number 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people. And then we get to verse number 28, where God pours his spirit out on all of Israel during the last days. Verse 28, and afterwards... And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And what will happen? This is Joel 2, 28. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servant and my maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. And that's from Acts chapter 2, trying to explain what happened at Pentecost. 
And then all of a sudden, we had these verses that show us a time stamp of when this particular verse is supposed to take place. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. I mean, that's at the end part of the tribulation period where God is getting ready to come and his wrath is being poured out. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. The context here is about Israel. But nevertheless, we have interpreted salvation as nothing more than a verbal or mental assent to some historical facts about Jesus and a claim that we, he will be Lord of our life when in practice, he's usually not. So how does he view that? I mean, are we following Christ that way? Is it okay, especially in the times in which we're coming, is it okay to, you know, to claim to be a Christian and our lost friends don't even know we're Christians because we've never told them about Christ or they've never seen anything in us that emulates Christ? We still have anger and bitterness and frustration, and, and we still have these besetting sins. Well, it's just the way I am, and you know, God forgave me of a bunch of stuff, but, but he still lets me hold on to these. I mean, where does that come from? Even if we assume that all somebody has to do is say the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer says, God, I recognize you as sovereign Lord. I ask you to forgive me my sins. I commit my life to you. You are my Lord. Is he really? Is he really? And if he's not, well, he is in some parts of my life, but, but it's a struggle. You know, I give things to him and I take back things from him. And I give things to him and I take back things from him. And how long have you been doing that? 40 years. Really? What if our kids did that? I mean, come on. Salvation, though, according to what Christ is talking about when it comes to follow him, salvation is talking about the kingdom. Jesus never says, I will forgive your sins. We, we find out that, that those things are said about Christ, and he talks about that sometimes in a third person. The Son of Man comes, you know, seek and save those that are lost. And Paul talks about the fact that that's what Christ does, but, but Jesus always preached about the kingdom. He never says, if you will come to me, I will make your life better. No, he actually said the opposite. I'll make your life worse. You will be hated by all people because of me. You're supposed to rejoice and be exceedingly glad when they persecute you as bad as they persecuted the Old Testament prophets, like sawing Isaiah in half upside down, if you want to imagine what that was like, um, that if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The New Testament affirms all who desire to live godly in Christ which is a practical sanctification of our salvation, will suffer persecution. We didn't buy into that. We just want him to season our life. We want to be our own man, call our own shots, do our own things, and then just ask you for forgiveness when we really mess up. And it doesn't really work that way because everything about the gospel is about the kingdom. And the kingdom is the good news that the king is coming. The king is here, and the king is going to, going to reject the usurper. He's going to take back the earth, and he's going to rule in righteousness. And you and I are citizens of his kingdom, but even more so, we're children of the king. And so we rejoice that the king is coming, and the kingdom is coming. I mean, that's, that's the good news. And if you'll follow this, we'll just take Matthew, for example. And if you'll follow this, all Jesus talks about is the kingdom. Go to Matthew chapter 3. I have a lot of these. I'm not going to go through all of them. But I want you to get a flavor for this. This is not something that Jesus says haphazardly. John the Baptist begins preaching. And here's what he says, verse number 2 of Matthew chapter 3. Repent. 
For Jesus the Messiah is coming, who will live close, or even not even naming Jesus, the Messiah is coming, the Christ is coming, who will be your best friend, he'll be your buddy, he'll you know, take care of all your needs, he will cradle you in his arm. No, he didn't talk about that. He doesn't talk about the, the personification of the king, instead he talked about the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins preaching the message. If we had some preacher come, a revivalist or an evangelist come to our church, he would preach a message about Jesus Christ, and he would talk about what Jesus did and what his atoning sacrifice did, and he would have this invitation where he would invite everybody to come and give their life to Christ. You know, Jesus meant that when he said, follow me, but it was a little more than just a mental ascent. But when Jesus began preaching, he says, repent, same as John, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 23, chapter 4, and Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, not the good news of forgiveness of sin and eternal life and your best life now. That's all involved in the kingdom, but of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. And in chapter 5, he begins to lay out for us what life in the kingdom is really like. That's why I love Matthew, because Matthew shows us that I'm preaching about the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Well, let me explain to you what life in the kingdom is really like. Matthew chapter 5, verse number uh, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs, again, is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness, listen very carefully, your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Let me rephrase that. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of a Mormon. Okay? you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, well, Mormons are pretty restrictive in what they do. Yeah, yeah, they are more committed to the false message they proclaim than we are to the truth. How many of us train our kids that instead of going to college when they're 18 and learn stuff that really doesn't help in the the great scheme of things, that they postpone that for two years and they go to a foreign country or another state and they spend two years telling other people about their version of Jesus. I mean, who as Christians ever does that? Ever. Why? Well, because we just want our kid to move on with life because we don't want to go on mission trips like that. We're not taking any part of our life. Hey, why don't you do this, Dad? Why don't you take your two teenage boys? Why don't you take a couple years off from work? And why don't you cash in your retirement accounts or whatever it is? Why don't you go with them to Bolivia, live in a hut, and tell everybody about Jesus for two years? No, I'm building a business here. I got things to do. I'm, I'm, I'm up for a promotion. I'm... See what I'm saying? And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, that it's not good enough. Chapter 7. I'm sorry, chapter 6. Verse number 10. He is, uh, he's teaching them how to pray. And the words that are duplicated in this prayer are words about the kingdom. Our Father... Verse number nine, chapter six, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Verse 13, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. And then a favorite passage of mine, Matthew 6, 33, when he says, look, I know you guys struggle with finances. Don't even worry about those finances. I'll take care of all that. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom where God dwells, where faith is built. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, you're killing me, Lord. What else you got? 
Chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Really? Well, who does? But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now we're back to the Matthew chapter 10, 9 and 10. I mean, uh, Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10 passage. It's one thing to say Jesus is Lord, and it's another thing to say he's Lord and not follow him as Lord. Chapter 8, verse 11 talks about the kingdom. Chapter 9, verse um, 35 is kind of like a summary. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. I'm, I'm not going to read all of these, talk about uh, the kingdom. But in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, there's a summary verse of what Jesus' ministry was all about. And here's what it says. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, and while he was going around all the cities and villages, those that were following him were obviously with him, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It's not the gospel of him or the gospel of the forgiveness of sin or the gospel of eternal life because it's all summarized in being in his kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Chapter 10, he is sending out the 12. And he's basically saying, okay, guys, you followed me. Now it's time to put into practice what I taught you. Verse number five. And it says that these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying... Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the city of the Samaritans. What he's basically saying, if you're Republicans, don't go getting all tied up with you know, your prejudices with the Democrats or vice versa, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach. And what do we preach? I met a man who told me everything I ever did. No. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No. Preach and say, verse 7, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And since the kingdom of heaven is at hand, let me show you what life is like in that kingdom. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received as a child of the kingdom, freely give. Chapter 11. Yes, yes. Now, it doesn't say they could do that all the time. It wasn't a gift that they possessed to use on their own. But what Jesus was doing here was showing them what life would be like when he left. This is what I am doing. And when I'm gone, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will do greater things than I do. This is, and he's given them a taste of that. We never do those kind of things because number one, we don't believe they happen. And number two, because we're not near as committed to him as they were. Does that make sense? But this is the norm. This is why this is in the scripture. You know, how can he promise us the abundant life in Christ and then show us what the book of Acts was like and then tell us, oh, no, no, that's not for you. That was only for them. It doesn't work that way. It's just that we have been satisfied with far less. Chapter 11. He talks about John the Baptist being the greatest one that ever lived, but he's least of those into the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 25, I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 25, there's a discussion about various kingdoms. There's Satan's kingdom and there's Jesus's kingdom. And, and verse 28, he says, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then when we get to chapter 13, it's like the Lord says, okay, enough of this. You know, I've talked about this, and you guys really aren't understanding. So let me explain to you how valuable salvation is, only I'm going to call it living in the kingdom. And so he gives example after example and parable after parable of what the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is like, what it is like to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ where he is sovereign and we are slaves in his kingdom. He tells the... Uh, parable of the uh, sower in the first part of that. And then when we get to chapter 10, or, or, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 10, the disciples come to him and go, why are you talking to us with riddles and parables? And he answers in verse number 11. And he said, because it has been given to you, not to them, but to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. So 
what you're telling us is about salvation because the parable of the sower is a salvation message. There's this fear, or there's this ground, and this ground is stony, and this ground is full of rocks, and this ground has weeds, and this ground is like a path that's padded down, and then this ground is fertile, and then so the seed of the gospel is thrown out, and then sometimes it's taken, and, and it, has, it has shallow roots, and then persecution or deceitfulness of wealth choke it out or burn it up. Sometimes it's, people are so hard that the birds come, which represents Satan, and eats the seeds, but for a good crop here, like you and I, it grows. And so we see it's a salvation message when he's talking about the kingdom, but he only refers to it as the kingdom. He uh, explains the message to them uh, of the parable of the sower in verse number 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower, okay? When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, we call that the salvation message of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't view it that way. He views it as word of the kingdom and does not understand it. And then he goes on to explain the parable. Verse number 24, we're going to tell another parable. Another parable he put to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And then the enemy came and sowed bad seeds and we wait to the harvest and we see who's truly a Christian and who's not a Christian. And the difference between wheat and tares is whether or not one produces grain. They look almost identical, except one has grain and one doesn't. It's rather scary. Verse 31, another parable. The kingdom is heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, the smallest of all seeds, and yet it built this, it grew to this mighty tree that even the birds of the air came and made their nest. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. That once it gets inside of you, it just permeates every area of your life. You cannot distinguish flour from leaven anymore once it's all connected. That's not my secular life and my spiritual life. It's all one. Then they asked him, verse number 36, uh, we need another explanation here. Tell us about the parable of the, the tares and the wheat. And so he explains that to them. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Think about this. Which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Having a relationship with Jesus Christ, calling him Lord, being a citizen of his kingdom is worth more than you could possibly imagine. And a man freely, excitedly gave up everything he had ever accumulated to acquire that kingdom or to acquire that uh, treasure. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And when he found one pearl, one pearl of great price, he went out and sold all that he had and bought it. Well, is the kingdom just for us? No, verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathers some of every kind of fish. And when the fish come, the fishermen come and they throw some over here and some over here and gather it all together because it's all part of God's kingdom, part of his kingdom. After he preaches to them about the kingdom, we come upon chapter 16, which we've already looked at. Who do you say that I am? And after chapter 16, we have chapter 17, where God reveals himself, the Lord reveals himself transfigured before them and tells them not to tell anybody until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And then we get to Matthew chapter 24. And Matthew chapter 24 is the verse or the chapter that we look at when we're dealing with um, the end times. Do you remember? So Jesus is getting ready to be taken into heaven. He gives us incredible teaching about the things that are going to happen. But verse number 14, he says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This gospel of the kingdom, the good news is about his kingdom. Um. Chapter 25, two more verses. Verse 1, 
Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Do you remember this story? Remember the video that we saw? Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. It's not enough just to make a profession and think you're okay. There's a a constant growing in Christ. Well, is that salvation by works? No, it's works as evidence of your salvation. I mean, you have been redeemed from the slave market of sin by the king who not only brings you into his house as a as a slave, but elevates you to the point of a son. And so much so that you're now a joint heir with his son, according to Romans chapter 8. That demands more of us than the church has ever required that we give. Ever. So what are we... um What is our life supposed to be like? Well, in Matthew chapter 25, we have the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, which shows that only those that are prepared, only those that are watching for him, will be entered into the the wedding feast. And then we have the parable, verse 14, of the talents, where certain people were given certain amount of money based on their ability to handle that. Some are not equal. Billy Graham may have been given more than somebody else, and the Apostle Paul was given more, and I'm given some, and you're given some, and we're not judged by the total amount that we produce in our life. We're judged on the relative value based on what he's given us. Someone who's given 10 doubles it, well done. Someone who's given five doubles it, well done. Some who's given two doubles it, well done. Some who's given one and buries it because he's too busy doing stuff he wants to do. He is cast out, thrown into a place that, anyway, I won't, I won't go there. That raises more questions than it answers at this point. But the idea is the fact is we have been given privilege to be about him in every area of our life. It's not a secular, sacred kind of thing. There is no more secular life for the Christian. We have a job and we have a profession that allows us to pay our bills and meet our needs, and God provides that for us. But the profession that we have is not how we identify ourselves. On top of that is the fact that we work here as an emissary of the Lord Jesus Christ, not, you know, I don't say anything about Jesus because it affects my job. That's the reason why we're there is to tell people about the Lord. And if we're not going to tell people about the Lord, then we end up like this talent. Well, you gave me, I had one, but you were a hard man, and I was more concerned about me, and so I buried it. It doesn't work that way. I mean, we, we have to emulate Christ wherever we go. Whole point of, the whole point of this is the fact that following Jesus is a lot more than just saying a prayer or coming to church or reading your Bible occasionally, or having marginal faith, and and having your life, instead of being terrible, it's now just kind of okay. The idea is the fact is we're supposed to live a life of resplendent glory of his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And that is one of the major drawing cards for Christ, is how other people see him in us. One of the most offensive things I ever heard is something my dad told me. My dad was lost. My dad was, you know, chairman of the deacons of a church and wrecked havoc everywhere he went. And it wasn't until I got older I realized just how bad he was. Um, And he used to always go to church and, you know, his wife would sit on the front row and do her little uh, charismatic stuff. and, um, And he would watch these really terrible sexual slasher movies. And I remember asking him one day, uh, I said, you know, I didn't want to tell him he was lost. I should have, but I didn't. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, how do you equate your supposed walk with Christ to watching these really disgusting, almost, you know, porn, slasher, blood-soaked kind of movies? I mean, how do you equate those things? And I remember my dad telling me this. I found it so offensive, but I find most of us live this way including myself. 
We just don't want to verbalize it. He said, well, when I, was, uh, when I was lost, I was 95% bad and 5% good. And when I got saved, God made me 85% good, and he lets me have that 15%. Now, do you find that offensive? But we live that way. I mean, if I asked you to write down that 15% in your own life, we all could. And it's areas of our life we refuse to give to him. We refuse to surrender to him because we don't want to. We don't think we should. It's, it's our life. It's our plans and stuff of that nature. And, and what? the more and more I read in Scripture, following Jesus is something far more profound and all-encompassing than anything I have ever taught, I've ever been taught, I've even... that. that Churches function at. I mean, it's it's something far deeper and far more glorious than I think we even know. And once we embrace that, then the Holy Spirit comes and uses us in a mighty way, and we become the kind of people that many of us have always wanted to be and have given up trying. And I think we need to rekindle that desire in us again. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just what it must mean to follow you. Lord, it has to be more than what we're doing because the gospel is not being, it's not making a dent against the darkness today. Your word says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel. And yet the gospel is found in us, in the church. And we seem to be too busy around us than we are about your kingdom. Lord, would you forgive me for that? And would you inspire us to be more about you in everything that we do? And I'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.